This reading, uh, scripture reading this morning is found in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. Text will appear on the screen behind me, but if you've got a Bible, electronic copy or in print, join me there, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Paul is writing, and by Cephas he means Peter, it's another name for Peter. The Lord's disciple Peter, the author of First and Second Peter in our New Testament. So this is two apostles. When Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, James was the half-brother of Jesus, leader of the New Testament church in, or leader of the church in Jerusalem, writer of the first New Testament letter, the letter of James. Verse 12, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, Peter was. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, another name for Jewish believers. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is God's word. We've been looking from God's Word at Biblical Justice. This is our fifth and final Sunday in the series. We started with God. Justice is a part of his nature, how he introduced himself to Moses, Exodus 34. And then we went to a psalm of praise to God for his doing justly. And then we went to the confrontation of a prophet, God confronting his people through the prophet Isaiah for our neglect and refusal to do justly. And then last week we were in the Gospels, we saw Jesus do justly, and now we conclude with this passage from the Apostles, from which we emphasize the reconciliation part of doing justly. If you remember back to the beginning of the series, even if you haven't been with us since the beginning, uh, to put it in simplest terms, kind of the sweeping survey of the Scripture, what is biblical justice about? It's about human flourishing and about reconciliation. We've been talking more about the flourishing part, how we take care of those who have needs, etc. Now in this passage, we talk about the reconciliation part, that justice is for reconciliation. Reconciliation between people and God, God doing justly and providing the way for us to be reconciled to him, and then reconciliation person to person. 
applying, we applying what God did for us, paying it forward, sending it out to others. This is our interest, the reconciliation of others, particularly reconciliation where there are differences and distinctions that should not bear the weight of division, but they do. And that's what this passage is about. I call this text uh, the gospel between us. I want to introduce that idea to you. If the gospel is between us, whatever distinctions there are among us, ethnic distinctions, uh, where we educate, etc. and so on, uh, those are no longer divisions if the gospel is between us. Whatever distinctions there are among us remain distinctions, but they're not divisions. Now, in the early church, you had divisions running along the lines of male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, ethnic distinctions. In fact, if you want to look over at chapter 3, verse 28, this is one of the most well-known verses in Galatians. Galatians 3, 28, Paul says emphatically, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And what he means by that is that there's no divisions anymore. The distinctions remain. Male remains male. Female remains female. Jew remains Jew. Gentile remains Gentile. But that's no longer a division. It's a distinction, but it's not a division. And so with this in mind, let's take what's here in our passage, end of Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. Let's um, take this from two angles, as I, I like to do, because I only have 30 minutes. So I give you three-point sermons if I had a longer time, but alas, two for my time frame. Two angles. First, let's look at what division over distinctions looks like. And then, second, why distinction is no longer division for those in Christ. Now here the distinctions are ethnic and so too were the divisions. They were ethnic divisions. We're going to look at first what division over distinctions looks like and then second why distinction is no longer division for those in Christ. All right? So first, what division over distinctions looks like. Well, look at verses 11 through 14. It looks like discord. It looks like factions. It looks like distrust. It looks like we don't know, though we do, but we don't know what belongs in the center of our fellowship. So here in our text, looking at verses 11 through 14 as a block of text, Paul confronts Peter, Cephas, over his practice of table fellowship. Now we're going to come to the table here, our communion table, momentarily. By table fellowship, I mean Jew and Gentile, the early church, ate together a lot. And table fellowship for the early church was the most tangible way they had to express the one body reality of Jew and Gentile together in Christ. No other group was like that at the time. You had no other place where all the ethnicities came together. Well, they came together in cities. They shared cities. But even then... You had the neighborhood over here that was this group and the neighborhood over here, much like we have now. The church was the one place in antiquity that you found people in different statuses of life and different ethnicities mixing. 
and treating one another with love and empathy. And a big part of showing the world their togetherness was in eating together, sharing common meals, out of which often communion was practiced. If you're a Jew, a Jewish person living in that time, and you're listening to Gentiles claim the name of of Christ and praise and, and worship the God of Israel, you're struggling with that. This was a struggle. We see it all through the New Testament. Jews had all this prior history with God. I mean, look at the way that uh, he puts it in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. In other words, he's sort of arguing from the point of the Jewish perspective. These Gentiles who have had no idea who God is for all of their ancient past, when our ancestors were reading the words of God, they were running naked in the wilderness. They were barbarians. And yet, uh, here they are uh, declaring the praises of the God of Israel. Now, if you're a Jewish person, you're struggling with that back in that time. Many did. Not all did, but many did. Because they had all this prior history with God. Jews grew up with the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promises God gave to them. The prophets. Jews were called a kingdom of priests. And a holy nation, Exodus 19. But now the apostles are teaching the church has that identity. The church is the holy nation. Guess who takes that language from Exodus and applies it to the church? Peter, 1 Peter 2.9. He wrote it. The Gentiles are now included in the holy nation, the kingdom of priests. So the church then is a multi-ethnic reality in the world. We get the word ethnicity from the word for Gentile. The word is ethnos, the nations, Gentiles. Our word ethnicity comes out of this. We're not trying to make the church a multi-ethnic reality. Some people say that. Well, nowadays it just feels like everybody is trying to make the church. It's it's not trying to make the church a multi-ethnic reality. The church has always been and will always be a multi-ethnic reality by the design of God, even in heaven. If you remember, we looked at Revelation earlier this year, first part of the year, January through March, we were in Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, and we saw there, remember that passage we saw there, where John is given a glimpse, a vision of what heaven looks like, and what did he see? Someone from everyone, Revelation 7, 9, Every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, all clothed in white robes, which is symbolic of our glorification, that human beings have been perfected in heaven. It's the goal of our salvation, the the completing of our salvation, if you will. But our resurrection bodies are not opaque. What does he see? Red and yellow, black and white. They are all precious in his sight, as I learned, and maybe you learned back in preschool, Sunday school. He sees the multi-ethnic people of God in their glorified state. He can still tell those are Africans. He can still tell those are Asia Minor residents. He sees white folks, and he says, who are those? (laughs) Haven't gotten the Germanic tribes yet, you know. This was hard for Jewish Christians to accept initially, And we have in this passage, verses 11 through 14, an example of why. 
just how ingrained ethnic division was in them, Jewish people. This circumcision party, I pointed it out to you, verse 12, see that term? These men who come from James, James the half-brother of the Lord, as I said, writer of our first New Testament letter. Most scholars date James as the first New Testament letter. Leader of the church in Jerusalem. This circumcision party from him, so-called. A lot of times when you read scripture, particularly from this side of the cross, and we see the Pharisees or the circumcision party in our mind, you get the little dun-dun-dun-dun, you know. Oh, here's the bad guys, you know, on the scene. (laughs) Boo, boo, we don't like you. Don't think about the circumcision party like that. These are Jewish believers. These are good men. They're not bad men. The difficulty with them is um, is they had this this baggage. Um, The baggage of Jewish nationalism, the baggage of needing to control how all Christians looked and what all Christians thought, and that was in keeping the kosher laws. Don't think of the circumcision party, verse 12, as bad men. Just understand their faith had baggage. Historically, back in that time, and even well before then, circumcision was a marker of distinction between Jews and most everybody else. And so was food. Uh, Jews kept particular kosher laws. Many still do. But what Jewish Christians had to learn. So if you're in the first century, when all this is fresh and new, and you meet Jesus as your Messiah, what Jewish Christians had to learn, even those who had been in Jesus' own family, James, even those who had been in Jesus' own circle, Peter, Jewish Christians had to learn, and it was painfully hard, That ethnic particularities, circumcision and kosher laws in their case, was no longer going to be a step-off point with the Gentiles who were receiving the very same grace from God, the very same justification by God to be declared righteous in his presence through his son. The gospel was between them now, and only the gospel. Let's put a... um, some background to this. Why is it really exceptional and unique that Peter is the one who would get confronted this way? Because if you go back to the book of Acts in your New Testament, Acts chapter 10 says that Peter is at the home of a tanner named Simon. That in itself is a unique context for the vision he receives because a tanner was an unclean place to be. Tanners are dealing with dead animals. And so Peter is there, and he goes up on the roof to fall asleep. And during his sleep, God gives him a vision three times. He repeats it three times. And the vision is a large sheet comes down from heaven. And in the sheet are all these animals that Jews cannot eat. And the sheet opens, and all the animals run forth. And a voice that Peter knows is God says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter goes, no way, I've never, I've never not eaten kosher. What are you talking about? And Peter says three times the same vision is given to him. And you've got it in Acts 10 and then you've got it repeated in Acts 11. Why all this repetition of it? Because the point of it was this, the multi-ethnic reality of the church had to be embraced. Not just tolerated, it had to be embraced 
the will of God in Christ Jesus that we surrender to is, includes him making one body out of a variety of ethnicities, making one church, one people of God for himself. And there's really nothing else in the world like this. The church. Uh, even with all of the advocacy today, and sometimes that advocacy for equity and equality and, and, and racial harmony, we may sympathize uh, with it at points, but at other points it, it sort of becomes its own religion. If people go really deep into it, it, it becomes its own religion, the, the religion of anti-racism. But, but the church remains the only place for racial harmony to be uh, possible in full. And, and not just that, the only place that racial harmony will eventually be perfected in heaven. That vision that we're given in Revelation 7. Now Peter understood this. Because in the background of Galatians 2 is Acts chapter 10, his vision of the sheet, three times. God saying to him through that vision, don't call unclean what God says is clean. It was about people, it wasn't about animals. It wasn't about kosher. Peter understood. He got the message in Acts and he defended it. If you go back to Acts and read it later, Acts chapters 10 and 11, you've got another circumcision party. That's what they're called. Jewish believers who insisted on, on the church observing certain prescriptions from Moses. And that circumcision party, Acts chapter 11, criticizes Peter for going into the home of a Roman centurion, a Gentile named Cornelius, preaching the gospel was fine for the circumcision party. The fact that Cornelius' household believed, Acts chapter 10, that was fine for the circumcision party. What was not fine is that Peter stayed with them, implying he ate with them. He sat at a Gentile table and ate non-kosher food. And the guys in Jerusalem, when Peter gets back to them, they confront him over it. Peter knew the implications of the gospel believed. He knew the reconciliation implications. He knew what God was doing. He got the game plan. And yet when he gets to Antioch, verse 11 tells us he goes to Antioch. What's Antioch? It's the Las Vegas of the ancient world. Okay, <laughs> what, what happened in, in Antioch stayed in Antioch. Okay, and, and what's remarkable about that is that oftentimes it's the most difficult places in the world where God's church is doing the most vibrant work. And so Paul is heated about this because it's taking place in a place where the work of God was, was moving and, and, and happening. And, and now this, Paul can't believe it. Peter's old self kicked in in Antioch. His old self that as a pious Jew considered fellowship with Gentiles a little bit beneath him. And even Barnabas, verse 13 Who's Barnabas? He's the encourager of Paul. Now he's a discouragement. <laughs> Paul maybe wanted to quit these guys. Natural reaction, but Paul knew something that we have to know. And that is that God is working supernaturally in his church then and now to overcome our natural enmities. God is incredibly patient with us. Pastors give up on their churches, but God never does. Now, one reason pastors are giving up today is over ethnic issues. We still have ethnic issues in our churches. 
And we have them all around the world, in fact. I've been to enough places in the world to know that even people who look like each other can have inter-ethnic struggles. I've been to places where tribalism is a problem. They all look the same, but they're from this tribe and they're from this tribe, and so they don't fellowship. Or you go to a place like India that's got the caste system. It's not official, but unofficially, it's very much part of Indian culture. And you've got in the church uh, high caste people and Dalits, and they don't interact anywhere else in Indian society. But in the church... They do, and there can be problems. I've sat with leaders of these churches in Africa and in India and in other parts of the world and heard them say, we have struggles even among ourselves, everybody looking alike, if they find out somebody's from a different tribe or a different caste. What is accounting for that? What's at the heart of distinctions being divisions is that something other than the gospel is between us. Our starting point is not what we have in common in Christ. And note here, look at the text. Paul wasn't trying to make Peter feel guilty. I know a lot of people had anxiety about this series because you, you thought, well, you know, Cole's probably going to make us try to make us feel guilty about something. Hopefully those fears were allayed as we went through, but Paul wasn't trying to make Peter feel guilty. That's how secularism operates. Secularism can see a good thing and that we need to move that way, but the way secularism will try to motivate you is through a lot of guilting and shaming and canceling. That's not how the gospel works. That's not what we do when the gospel is between us. We don't cancel one another. We don't distrust one another. Not when the gospel's between us. Paul was pointing to something specific in Peter's conduct. And he put it in gospel terms. He said, Peter, we're not talking about lunch. We're talking about the gospel. We're talking about the interpersonal implications of reconciliation to God when we believe the gospel. But I can see that you're struggling with these implications, though you and I believe the same thing. Paul could see it in Peter's actions. It wasn't, I just felt it, you know, I just, I just feel you're kind of being a racist here. No, that's what people nowadays do. Leave that out there, not in here. He didn't assume it. He didn't accuse or label Peter. He saw something. He saw it specific to something else, namely the gospel. Why is there this table fellowship alienation based on ethnicity? Peter, you know better. You know that the table, a table that Jesus effectively died to set so that you could eat together and be together as one. The gospel says to every ethnicity, we are all of us in equal need of the redeeming grace of God. The ground is level at the cross. That's cliche, but cliche is just worn out truth. It's threadbare truth. It's been loved on so much. Uh, that the, it's had it's like a stuffed animal. It's had the eyes loved off, you know. The ground is level at the cross. You know, the big topic of our day and time, what we're living in, you know this, is the unlevelness of our society along lines of race and ethnicity, racial justice matters. And people are telling us, well, you've got to have these discussions. You've got to step into this space. You've got to engage on this. But, you know, before we can even have those discussions... We in the church have to first ensure that the gospel is between us. 
Because if we don't start from our common ground, we don't reach common ground. If the gospel isn't between us, if who we are in Christ is not our starting point, all other starting points will send us running away from each other and running around in circles. There's a lot of circling the wagons today. I understand. I understand people are fearful, nervous, suspicious, on edge, anxious. I get it. There's a lot of circling the wagons today around our tribal identities, where I feel safe, my tribal loyalties. And we all have tribes. I have them, you have them. You and I have our authors and our preachers and teachers and podcasters and pundits that we trust and others that we look askance at and don't trust. You and I have our information sources that we trust and others that we don't trust and look askance at. That's just life in America and it's going to be with us for a long time. I don't know how to guide America (laughs) or the world for that matter in talking about matters and issues of, of ethnic difference and distrust. The starting points are all mostly broken there. It's about power. But I don't even know anymore how to help the church do this because our starting points seem broken also. But I still think even with contentiousness abounding all around us and even among us, I still think of you, I believe of you, that most of you, if not all of you, want to be people of goodwill. And you want to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And you want to do justly to the weak and the vulnerable among them. What I believe is true of you is that you know that that's the call of God on his people. And I know many of you are asking God to help you meet him where he goes. And I value that about you. The call of God in Christ on us all is that our distinctions not become divisions. See the distinctions. Don't, don't, you know, it's actually not helpful to say to somebody, I don't see color. They feel minimized by that. They feel like, well, you're taking an essential part of my identity and just wiping it out. See the distinctions. Don't let the distinctions become divisions. Okay? We're well-meaning when we say that. It's, we, we mean well, but it comes across very awkward and klutzy. I've, I've talked to, it's, it's only white people that say that, all right? Can we talk? <laughs> and I talk to my black friends and they go, can you some, at some point say to your white brothers, please stop saying you don't see color, you know? I don't want you to look past me. I want you to see me as I am. God made me this way. Don't dismiss my identity. But what we have to do is not let the distinctions be divisions. That's our call. There is neither slave nor free. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female in Christ Jesus. And so, that being the gospel, Paul says, verse 14, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That's fascinating the way he puts that. And that takes us to our second consideration of two. Why distinction is no longer division for those in Christ? Why not? Why are distinctions no longer division for those in Christ? The simple answer is the gospel doesn't allow it. If we're honest about what we believe, the gospel simply doesn't allow ethnic division. Verse 14 again. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. What's the conduct? We're separating over ethnic distinctions. Gentiles come act a certain way. Jews come act a certain way. 
And then, verses 15 to 21, he springboards from that into the gospel. All right, he's raised the issue in verse 14. They weren't acting in accordance with the gospel. So what is the gospel, Paul? Verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. We have all this history with God, and yet God has no grandchildren. Because, verse 16, yet we know that a person, Jews know, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He's talking to Jewish believers, specifically in verse 16. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus, even with the law and the prophets and all the patriarchs and all the promises behind us. We, verse 16, have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because we know that doesn't work. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That's the gospel, verse 16. What he does is he goes on to say what the gospel is. It's a message. A message that there is a way. There is one way for us to be reconciled to God, the God who made it all. And this is all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all people, all ethnicities. The gospel is the declaration that everything that separates human beings from God, our maker, Everything that separates us from God is covered by the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Both Jews and Gentiles need to hear this. Jews, even with all their history, still need Jesus. God doesn't have grandchildren. So Paul, speaking to the redeemed Jews here, says as he goes on, here's what I reminded Peter of. You get the confrontation in verse 14. But what's behind it? Verses 15 and 16, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, and yet we know that the the law doesn't save us. We can't keep it. And so why are you trying to keep it here? What does verses 15 and 16 mean? Jesus did the works of the law for us. He lived a flawless life. He died a substitutionary death. A Jew in substitute for us Gentiles, as well as other Jews, his kinsmen, We should have faced the wrath of God. He did. He took his own wrath against sin. He being God the Son. He defeated death for sin. And now he lives. All that's wrapped up in our being justified. This word in verse 16. The point of justification is reconciliation to God. That's what being declared righteous means. We're reconciled to God. What do we do with that? Seek to pass it on to others. They have to believe, but tell them the gospel. Do the gospel through doing justly to those who are weak and vulnerable. We all love verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I want, to note, I want you to note the past tense of that. The end there. Loved me. Jesus does love us now, but it's phrased here, loved me and gave himself for me. Why? He loves me now because he loved me then. And scripture says he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He loves me now because he loved me then. His love then is not a feeling for me that's subject to whim. I blew it. 
Tuesday. And so on Wednesday, it's like, I don't think I love him anymore. No, his love is not a feeling for us. It's a securing us, loved us, gave himself for us, past tense, security by, by his own self-giving. What happened 2,000 years ago is why Jesus loves us now. God reconciles us to himself in such a way that it's like we ourselves went to the cross and it's like we ourselves walked out of the tomb. And that's the point of verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. I've said to you many times from this pulpit that Jesus always comes with his people attached. It's not just me and Jesus. I can also tell you from this verse that Jesus comes with his cross and empty tomb attached. He always comes with his people attached, and his people are someone from everyone. And he always comes with his cross and his empty tomb attached. Somebody put it this way, and I thought it was really well said. The message of Christ isn't, you can't kill me. The message of Christ is, you can kill me, and that's not death. Man, that's wonderfully stated. The message of Christ is not, you cannot kill me. The message of Christ is, you can kill me, and that's not death. And so living on this side of the cross, in the light of the resurrection, what would be death for us? What would be, remember uh, verse, uh, verse 18, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor? If we try to rebuild what he tears down, we prove ourselves to be transgressors. In other words... If we turn our distinctions into divisions, if we allow and encourage alienation instead of reconciliation, we're trying to resuscitate the death Jesus died to kill. If we refuse to embrace reconciliation, we're not living in resurrection life. That is why Paul lit into Peter as severely as he did. It's not just that Peter knew better. And that Peter was trying to resuscitate the death Jesus died to kill. What about you? What about me? Where do we work against what we know better in our beliefs? Now, when a preacher asks you a question in a sermon, you start thinking about it, but really you, you need to think on that one for a while. Think about it this week. Where do we work against what we know better in our beliefs? Where do, where do I permit alienation? I'm okay with it, and I shouldn't be. This table that we move to now, the fellowship we have around it, communion, the act of communion, you know, it's not just about Jesus and me or Jesus and the people who are like me and me. This is a communal act. Every time you take these elements, we always kind of center in on ourselves, and, and that's that's sort of a given. But you also have to be cognizant of the people around you in communion. I am to notice everyone around me taking communion so that it clicks with me. It sits in me. This is my family. This is my family. The people of God are my people in all their variety. And if God has reconciled me to himself at infinite cost to himself, how could I ever choose to be alienated from anyone for whom Jesus has done the same thing? That's a part of communion too. 
This table he died to set. So that when we take these elements, we remember him. And we often emphasize the remembering part as well we should. That's what communion is essentially about. But it's also about not forgetting one another. Jesus comes with his people attached through his cross, through his empty tomb. And his people have all this variety, the gospel between us. So if you'll take your communion elements and you'll think back to me or with me to the night that Jesus was betrayed. And he took bread, and that's the top membrane here. He took bread. He was up in the upper room with his disciples. He was about to go to the cross hours from then. He took bread, and he broke it, and he distributed it among the disciples. And he said, this represents my body, which is given for you. And as often as you eat it, remember me. Not only did he ask them to remember his self-sacrifice of his body, but he would die in a very heinous way. His blood would be poured out of his body. And so he took a cup, and he said, this cup represents a new covenant. And what's key about that is that covenant in their minds, the disciples' minds, was about, if I obey, God will bless me. When I disobey, he curses me. That was the old covenant. Jesus says, I'm going to pour out in my blood the basis of a new covenant, which means I'm going to obey for you. I've already obeyed for you. And I'm even going to go to the extent of obeying to the point of the curse of the law, taking that upon myself, though I knew no sin. And so in his obedience, we're blessed. In his faithfulness, we're spared the punishment that should be ours. And so when he distributed the cup, he said, this represents a covenant that will be poured out for you by way of my blood, and as often as you drink it, remember me. And then they sung a hymn. So let's stand and sing together, and then we'll be dismissed.